Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Observability Talks. I'm Dotan Horvitz. I'm a developer advocate. And uh, actually, I'm uh, quite excited to say that uh, we've reached an important milestone in the uh, podcast. We've completed the full year of the podcast, uh, 12 monthly episodes about uh, uh, open source, DevOps, and uh, observability. Um, and we've got really, we had really uh, amazing experts from the community uh, on these episodes, really uh, exciting. All the episodes, as you know, are available on all the uh, popular apps. And if, you, if you're not aware of that, uh, we're also streaming, uh, we stream all the episodes live on uh, YouTube and Twitch. So you're more than welcome to uh, tune in on the live streams and uh, type in your questions, your comments, and take part. Uh, it makes it much more fun, uh, trust me, also for me. Um, and uh, also, we are more than happy to have more people from the community involved. So if you are interested, do uh, check out the CFP on the website openobservability.io, uh, or just reach out over Twitter uh, at openobserve or directly to me uh, at Horovitz, H-O-R-O-V-I-T-S, whichever uh, way works for you. We'd be more than happy to have more people involved and also on feedback on the past year and what you expect to see on the coming season. So uh, do uh, stay tuned. And with that, let's go to today's episode. And today I'm actually uh, quite uh, excited about the topic. The topic is going to be about uh, Kubernetes observability. Uh, what the challenges, we're going to talk about the challenges of uh, this environment, the solutions, the technologies in general, and the uh, eBPF in particular. We've discussed that in previous episodes briefly, a uh, very exciting new technology that uh, bears the promise of uh, uh, low code to zero code uh, instrumentation, uh, to instrument and the, again, gain observability in these environments. For, uh, for the guest, I have a, a, an expert about this. We have uh, Natalie Serino. Natalie is uh, uh, a founding engineer in uh, Pixie Labs uh, that has been acquired uh, a few months ago by uh, New Relic. So uh, now part of the big corp and actually also part of an open source because uh, Pixie has been uh, contributed as an open source to the CNCF. It's been accepted uh, just last week to the uh, sandbox, uh, CNCF sandbox. Uh, so a lot of excitement. Uh, hello, Natalie. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you. Sounds like uh, you've been having uh, quite some uh, interesting uh, few months uh, recently with all the news. We have. Yeah. I mean, it was awesome working on Pixie and then having the chance to join New Relic and open source the entire project has been a wild ride and super awesome. And we're thrilled about the recent news that we've been accepted as a CNCF sandbox project. Way to go. It's a, it's, it's a many amazing contribution also to the uh, CNCF community and the cloud native ecosystem in general. So uh, we're definitely going to talk about uh, Pixie and the uh, open source. Uh, but maybe uh, we can start by uh, uh, hearing a bit about uh, yourself. You come from a background that is uh, less typical. Usually we have uh, people coming from uh, heavy DevOps, SRE, and so, and so on. Actually, what I, I like very much about your background is the data aspect, the data and analytics part of it. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your uh, journey? Yeah, for sure. So um, I technically started in hardware, but pretty early on in my career, I got really interested in data problems. And uh, I joined this company called Trifacta uh, when I was still you know, pretty early on in my career. And the cool thing about them was that they were solving a problem that I had always had, but didn't know there was a solution to, which was cleaning up and preparing data sets. 
because a lot of times cleaning up the data set is the most effort. And we see that in the observability space as well, too, in a lot of cases. So that was kind of what got me into the data space and thinking about data problems. And I spent uh, a few years in that domain before becoming really interested in the topic of observability, which coming from that data lens, uh, I, I tend to see it a little bit like a data problem. Yeah, I, actually, that's exactly how I look at it. When I talk about observability, I think that one of the things that I emphasize uh, uh, many times is that essentially it's a data problem. It's having uh, all the, uh, the signals, all the telemetry, but being able to ask the questions that you want to know about your system is in essence what observability is about, at least for me. So uh, it's really exciting to see someone coming from the data realm and looking at it in that uh, in that prism. Um, so today, actually, we're going to talk about uh, Kubernetes observability. And I guess the first question that comes to mind is, what, what's so special about uh, observability specifically in Kubernetes? Why is that any different? Yeah, so I think that you know there are a few things that make Kubernetes observability a little bit different. Um, you know, you start with a lot of the same challenges as normal observability. You want to know, you know, are my machines overloaded? Is the CPU too high? Is the network, you know, being maxed out? So you start with, you know, similar sets of challenges, but then you layer on a couple more that are specific to Kubernetes. So uh, one of them is debugging Kubernetes itself in the control plane. I'm sure I'm not the only one here who has misconfigured my Kubernetes cluster deployment <laughs> and spent a while trying to figure out what the heck is going on here? So I think that that's you know one uh, Kubernetes-specific challenge. Um, I think another challenge is the uh, you know classic thing of microservices because Kubernetes is set up to help people you know adopt a, a microservice architecture, which means that rather than a monolith that's you know doing everything in one place, you have a lot more requests a lot more uh, stuff happening in a distributed way, which means that as you're looking at any one part of the system, it can be harder to understand the bigger picture. So I think that that is another challenge. And then the other thing I would highlight is that uh, Kubernetes resources are inherently ephemeral. We have pods coming in and out of existence. The mentality of you want to treat your stuff more like cattle, not pets, where you can move it around and you know not treat it too precious. And that is a really great thing when you're building a distributed architecture. But I think that when you're trying to hunt down a problem some user faced, it can be challenging from an observability perspective when these things may not exist anymore or have different names and you can't necessarily easily find the source that it came from. Yeah. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, also there's uh, obviously the Kubernetes-specific uh, control plane and all the uh, Kubernetes-specific metadata that people need to uh, be able to uh, enrich the, uh, the signals with and, and need to correlate according to that. So uh, sort of different dimensions if we talk about the data look of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think also, you know, there's challenges around security where people, you know, may not want some of this very sensitive telemetry data to leave their cluster in certain cases. Mm -hmm. um, Kubernetes can, you know, help provide a little bit of a firewall around, you know, some of your application with its networking stuff. Um, so that can be, you know, an interesting aspect and, uh, you know, just stuff like that. And as more and more developers like take on some of this kind of traditional kind of ops stuff, uh, as it those lines get blurred, I think that we also see a desire for more 
uh, programmability of observability systems. Yeah, I think this is uh, the ability to to query and programmatically get uh, get this information is uh, becoming more and more essential in these uh, in these systems, uh, which which brings us essentially to the um, uh, the way to handle that. I guess uh, you mentioned microservices and uh, these usually typically this uh, brings about uh, the question of uh, instrumentation and uh, especially uh, on the on the tracing side of things uh, where it can become uh, quite quite heavy. So. Um, how do you view the current state of, uh, of uh, instrumentation general, manual instrumentation in particular being the main path? Yeah, so I think that we are still kind of early on in this journey, I would say, like the industry is still trying to kind of form like the consensus on what some of the right practices are. And so it's an exciting time to be thinking about this type of thing. Um, I mean, the major thing that, you know, everyone kind of hears about at this point would be open telemetry where you use code to instrument your services and you you know use maybe the open telemetry collector to collect that information and you know use that for analysis later and um, i think that we're at pixie really big fans of open telemetry because it creates a data standard for the format of this information which makes it a lot easier to correlate a bunch of stuff together so i would say that you know one of the main players right now, our main architectures is to use code to instrument your services and um, probably follow the open telemetry specification. Yeah, although uh, we've been discussing several times about uh, open telemetry in the, uh, in the podcast, I think open I see at least open telemetry is something between, uh, you mentioned the manual side, so you need an SDK, a language specific SDK, obviously, and then the Java one, the Python one, the .NET one. Um, and, and then you, you instrument manually. But then again, I think, and I see that in the discussions on the uh, relevant SIGs uh, in, the, uh, in the open telemetry, uh, now it's uh, uh, tags, they, they changed the name, but uh, essentially that uh, they put a lot of emphasis on, on enhancing also the uh, automatic instrumentation. So they're right. trying, they try and sort of uh, uh, me identify the relevant uh, libraries. I know for Java, it could be uh, uh, Spring. For uh, you know Python, it could be Django or, or something else. And then uh, assuming that a large part of the audience uses these libraries, then they put the hooks there so that it saves a lot of the coding uh, when you use the, these libraries. Uh, is, that, is that something that you uh, see as well? Yeah, for sure. And I think that um, one of the great things about OpenTelemetry is that you know, based on the data standard, it doesn't really matter like how it was collected as long as it all comes out in that same standard. And so, you know, whether you're getting the data in an automated way or if you have said, hey, this is a part of my application I really wanna pay attention to, so I'm gonna put the effort to put this code in to collect that information, you know, in, in either case, it can end up in the same spot. So I think that, you know, we do see the language specific agents like you're saying where people instrument like common libraries and node and things like that yeah. um so that can definitely you know be something that is you know happening and i think also people are interested in using service meshes for this yeah. problem as well to basically say hey if i'm already running a service mesh maybe i can you know collect the traffic that that service mesh is routing for me and use it in an observability context Anyway, it's like it's classic. You already have that sidecar and controlling all the traffic. So at the very uh, 
the very least, you can have the ingress and uh, egress sort of uh, defining a scope that can be uh, identified and reported on. Uh, which reminds me, uh, there was a very nice post, blog post that I saw about instrumentation with uh, Istio. So maybe I'll, I'll show that at the end of this post as part of the uh, news part. Uh, but um, how much is that? So auto instrumentation is like the holy grail. Everyone is looking yeah. for auto instrumentation. But beyond the, the buzzword of auto instrumentation, how automatic is it really? So, for example, uh, you, you mentioned uh, service meshes or agents. How close does it get? Because at least for me, example, the, the, the Istio one that, I'm, uh, that I mentioned, you do see that you, did, you need, still need some level of coding. It's not entirely codeless. So how, how close do we get? Uh, are we getting to, to real auto-instrumentation with these uh, current offerings? We're, we're soon going to go to, uh, to Pixie, of course. But even before that, with the ecosystem that we see, uh, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, so I think that you know they can be the right solution depending on your needs. So in the case of service meshes, you know that may not be the right architecture choice for everyone in their application. But for people who are using it, you know it can be a good way to capture your HTTP data. You'll still want to augment that with collection of you know other kinds of information like system metrics and you know maybe profiles of your application. Um, but if you're, you know, pretty much exclusively interested in that network traffic, that can be a good option, or you can augment it with other tools. Um, I think with the language specific stuff, you know, it's great as long as the thing that you want is instrumented. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, which, which brings us to, uh, I guess the, the new and exciting kid on the block, uh, eBPF, uh, not, not so new actually, but, uh, you, you'll give us the, the brief history of that, but, uh, now picking up, uh, extremely well. And, uh, I guess this is a technology on the kernel level on, on the Linux level that, that brings, a, a, a new direction of taking uh, instrumentation, uh, that is, is much less coding, no code, uh, because you do that on the kernel level. Can you tell us a bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, for sure. Uh, eBPF, or I might also refer to it as BPF, kind of can use both terms, yeah. is a really awesome, uh, relatively new technology to the Linux kernel. So the premise behind BPF is that you can basically, you know, this may not be how everybody explains it, but I almost think about it as the ability to add hooks to your kernel. So if you want to say like every time you open a file, call my little function that I've defined, and um, you know it allows you to basically specify probes that get to run anytime the operating system does something, and this can occur in the kernel space or in the user space. So it's really powerful, and you know in some ways it's it's so powerful that you know it, we're still just scratching the surface of what we can do with it, but. It's been really utilized in the networking sphere. You can create custom firewalls that say like, hey, drop everything that isn't this type of traffic that I'm looking for and you know, make your systems more secure. Or you can do something to say like, you know, every time you, you know, write to a file, like let me know or start a process. Like it's very, very uh, functional and very powerful. And so we uh, at Pixie got pretty excited about applying that to the context of observability. In fact, I think it, it actually, historically, it started from the networking uh, context and the networking implementation. Then the sort of the, the, the extension to the BPF was more taking it towards the direction of system calls and, and other areas, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Right. And, you know, I think we have to give a lot of 
uh, give a shout out to Brendan Gregg, who really helped popularize it. Uh, yeah. You know, his work in that space has really helped everybody who uses it today. So, um, you know, he has been a major player in that. Yeah, that's true. And uh, and now with with the with this extension, I think the uh, the context comes to mind with uh, really uh, observability and, and the types of information. Maybe can you help us understand what what kinds of information can we collect out of uh, this sort of instrumentation? Yeah, so um, a whole lot. Um, you can in in the context of observability, you can collect you know full body request traces. So. You make a MySQL request, you make an HTTP request, you have a gRPC stream. Uh, you can leverage BPF to get, uh, you know, capture entire requests, uh, you know, of any network or of any protocol. So that one is really exciting because it can work across like many different types of traffic. Um, you know, you can also collect uh, statistics about resource utilization. Um, you can collect CPU or, you know, how many bytes am I reading? How many bytes am I sending on the network? Um, you know, is that something that is calculated on the fly, or that has to be like pre-calculated and just collect the pre-made uh, metric? How, how does it work? The uh... Uh, how does it work to collect the? Um... Yeah, when you have performance metrics, is that something that you need to put in the logic to calculate the uh, sort of the on the fly the I don't know, sliding window, or whatever that? Uh, or yeah. is that something that you need to have the hook there to calculate it for you and you just? Pick it up uh, straightforward. Yeah, so at Pixie, you know, we 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 collect it as a counter, and then our downstream queries will process it and turn it into percents and things like that. Okay, gotcha. So you have counters uh, pre-made that you can uh, plug into. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then also another really cool one is, um, you know, using it to collect like profiles of what your application is doing, where it's spending its time, which function is eating up the most of the resources. Nice. That's uh, a lot of discussion about profiling as part of the uh, the new. I think actually we had the, we had a, an episode that we talked about profiling as as the as you know the next signal in in observability or the the something that should be looked into as part of the overall observability. So it's uh, it's actually an interesting direction. Maybe I should have a, a dedicated episode just on that yeah. uh, because it's really exciting. Um, and another question that I, I, I encounter uh, often when I talk about uh, eBPF is about the security because you know people say, okay, you take a, a piece of a bytecode, you inject it into my kernel. That sounds uh, not the safest, uh, safest player thing. How do you see the the security aspect of that? Yeah, so I think that you know that's something that the community has put a lot of thought and effort into because you know, it is a very powerful thing that you can do with your kernel. So we have to make sure that, you know, sure, these may be Linux superpowers, but they need to be used for good, not evil, right? So uh, I think that one thing that's really important to know about BPF is that it imposes like very strict requirements on the probe or the hook that you want to execute. So you can't just write any arbitrary code. It, uh, you know, does a very, very thorough security pass on the probes that you're trying to install and make sure that they're not doing anything untoward. So I would say that that's one really important thing to keep in mind is that uh, you can't just write anything arbitrary. There's some strict rules about it. Is that like, uh, I don't know, one, one of the examples that I at least encountered is like if, if your code does like an infinite loop or something like that, that will start eating up the uh, cycles. But what kinds of uh, checks can, can be done in a static uh, way to, to identify risks? 
Right, right. Yeah, I think a loop is a really good example of that. So it actually causes us in our, uh, you know, BPF side of things to have to think really carefully about how to structure some of these collectors. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about, uh, so obviously it's a, it's a Linux kernel thing. So uh, it's a Linux environment. Is there any uh, suitability for other types of environments? What, what kind of, where is that applicable in terms of uh, variety? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, Linux is definitely the the main one, right? Like there's some talk, I think there's a recent project, eBPF for Windows, which is a cool development. Um, but, you know, for now we think of it as a pretty Linux focused thing. And, you know, from what we've seen observability, like that covers, you know, pretty large part of what we're interested in solving for people. I'm just checking to see, uh, I think, uh, starting Linux 4.13. I'm just checking for myself to see what uh, where the support uh, is, is getting. So I guess everything beyond that uh, version, but still only Linux. At least I think Windows starts uh, supporting that. Yeah. Um, and the next question uh, that, that, again, I encounter quite often, not just for EVPF, but in general for instrumentation, is, is the aspect of performance. So many people ask me, OK, you put some extra code that, uh, that uh, listens and, and generates some, I don't know, spans or metrics or logs or whatever. How, how much overhead does it uh, incur? So uh, what do you know about the performance aspect? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, especially because in observability, half the time you deploy an agent and it's on your production system and it's using like half your resources. It's yeah. like, what the <laughs> heck is going on here? So um, I think that, you know, obviously people's production systems are very sensitive. We want to have very low overhead and um, BPF, depending on what you do, I mean, it can have a variable overhead just depending on the probes you insert and where you insert them. But I would say that, you know, in in the context that Pixie is using BPF, we see the overhead as less than 5% and it is usually less than 2%. So we have a really strong commitment to try and keep the overhead as low as possible because of the importance of the systems that we run on. Makes sense. I, I think in general, the uh, from what I know about uh, EPPF, it's that it's important to note uh, that it's it's a compiled code. It's like a just-in-time compiler that so that ultimately the compilation is happening ha takes place in advance, and then you get the bytecode already there. So maybe just to reassure some of the audience that is less familiar with that, that it is a bytecode compiled bytecode that is uh, executed, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, if you're using it for observability, you can use it to monitor itself, see how much uh, how how much it's taking <laughs> up. We actually use our own tool all the time to debug uh, resource consumption stuff. So, yeah, sounds good. Uh, I see. Actually, we have some uh, uh, questions from the audience around that. Uh, let's uh, see uh, the question here from the audience: What's the baseline for the consumption? What's the percentage of what? Yeah, so we typically think about uh, CPU for that, um, but we also want to make sure that memory is, you know, not being overly impacted as well. I think CPU is like normally the one that uh, is the one to watch. Sounds good. And uh, we have another question that uh, relates to uh, uh, something that uh, we talked about before about other types of uh, instrumentation. Uh, uh, Eric asks here is asking, what does it what how, how is it different from Istio or Istio Sidecar or Envoy uh, in that respect? 
Yeah, so um, if you're thinking about sidecars, they're basically going in between you know, your application and the thing sending it a request. And they're directing that traffic, monitoring that traffic, looking at that traffic. And so that is kind of a like, you know, a layer in between what's happening and it usually runs as a separate pod or container. So the difference between that and, you know, BPF-based observability is that in BPF, you're actually going right to the source of where the event is happening in your application. And you're extending the Linux kernel to capture those events based on the types of probes that you're registering using BPF. So rather than having a separate component receive the traffic, look at it and do something, you actually just go right to where the traffic is happening. And the implication of that is that you don't need a separate component and you don't need to do anything other than add these probes. Yeah, and again, I think beyond the, the scope that you mentioned, uh, the, I think the variety of, uh, of events that you can collect, right? Uh, mm -hmm. With the sidecar, it's mainly the seat on the, on the path for, for right. the, again, as you said, the ingress and egress of the operations. I think you get the final granularity and ty different types of uh, data on the uh, eBPF level. Huh? No? Right, right. Yeah, like you know, mentioned like CPU profiles, things like that. Um, you can use all those to, um, you know. Yeah. Sounds good. I, I would maybe also say something that uh, maybe for me it resembles more the types of language-specific agents uh, in the respect that uh, very much uh, similar to these frameworks like, uh, I don't know, uh, hooking on to uh, Spring or, or other uh, uh, middleware framework that, uh, that the uh, language-specific is, is, uh, code is, uh, runs on, they, the typical way that these agents work is that they, they uh, plug into existing hooks or interceptors or, or things like that. And uh, in the worst case, they do uh, like bytecode manipulation, but most of them just, you know, take the existing hooks and just uh, integrate with them, which is very, very similar to what the eBPF does, obviously, in the higher level of the, the middleware. So maybe if, if I would look to the, for the uh, closer equivalent, it would be more of the language-specific uh, um, agents. Uh, so. Yeah, although in those cases, you know, hardware metrics or other kinds of like system metrics, um, you know, I think that when you're tapping in at the OS layer, you can get access to both the application level stuff as well as the system level stuff. Yeah, it um, makes a lot of sense. And uh, that brings us to, uh, to Pixie. Uh, first of all, again, uh, congrats for uh, getting accepted uh, the uh, to the uh, CNCF as a sandbox uh, project. That's really exciting. Um, so uh, I guess Pixie's uh, mission is exactly to use eBPF to overcome all these challenges that we talked about before. So um, uh, tell us a bit about that. How, uh, let's start with how, how, how did uh, Pixie start? What was the uh, mission statement? What the idea, where the idea came from? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, when the founders were starting Pixie, a lot of it really came out of the fact that uh, they were building, they wanted to build the observa observability tool that they always wanted to have themselves. And I think that that's where a lot of projects like this come from. It's like, you know, we are the users, we have these needs, and this is what we want it to look like. So I think that, you know, I, I had worked with uh, the one of the co-founders, Zine, at Trifacta, and I think that you know when we were there, we did find troubleshooting and debugging production systems to be a big challenge and a much bigger challenge than debugging your local developer environment. So I think that 
they were thinking like, how can we make debugging this production system more like debugging, you know, a local developer environment? And I think that when thinking of the company, there were kind of like three major things that, you know, Pixie was looking at as problems to solve in this space. Um, the first problem is the difficulty of collecting telemetry data. Um, there are a lot of code changes required to do so today in most cases. Lots of different tools collecting different kinds of data that have to be like synthesized together in the same place. And you, you tend to see a, a lot of challenges around just getting the data in the first place. And it to an outsider, it doesn't sound necessarily like it would be that hard, but like a lot of things, it actually is the more you get into it. So we found that like collecting the data, it was a really big issue. Um, another issue that we saw was that, you know, a lot of architectures have moved towards a more cloud-based architecture. And so what that meant in the observability space was that people were collecting large amounts of telemetry data and trying to send it to a remote cloud where their tool was hosted. And I think that, you know, there are upsides to that, but the downside is that the volume of data can be a really big burden on network, especially in a production system. And so you end up either sampling the data or overloading your resources to export it all out there. And it can also introduce, you know, some challenges with security if you're not comfortable with that sensitive data leaving your cluster, for example. So that was another problem. And then the last problem we kind of alluded to earlier, which is the challenge of making observability systems more programmable. How can we, you know, embed these systems into more automated workflows? And um, in a lot of cases, you know, we were hoping for it to be more like writing code that could run anywhere rather than having to be in kind of like a wall system that is hard to kind of expose the interfaces of. So, so I think yeah. those were some of the challenges that they were thinking about. And we can talk about some of the solutions to that. <laughs> yeah, so essentially, uh, and so eBPF was something that you had in mind uh, from the get-go, or is that uh, something that you discovered as a means to, to an end afterward? Yeah, I think that that was something that was, you know, a core part of the approach early on because it was relatively new in Linux terms, but extremely promising in what it had been proved out to be able to do. So, um, you know, that was basically the one of the main answers to the first problem, which is how can we give people, especially Kubernetes users, where there's so much application traffic between the various components, access to a very, very deep and immediate baseline observability into their system. It doesn't mean they'll never add code to instrument their system. In fact, like we believe in progressive instrumentation where it's a combination of automatic and explicit instrumentation in your system. But right out of the gate, I want to be seeing which systems are talking to which systems, who's using the most resources, where are they spending that time? And, you know, what's my service map? Like who, you know, who's involved? And, you know, we believe that that should be something that is available to people at very little effort right out of the gate. Sounds good. And by the way, is that uh, uh, just around the tracing or is that something that also pertains to other types of uh, telemetry data? Oh yeah, it's all types. So tracing is like obviously a big one, but you know, you can also immediately get access to resource utilization and things like application profiles, uh, you know, when you deploy Pixie. 
Great. So, so do you want to tell us a bit about how, how it works, how you uh, in Pixie uh, utilize eBPF and what's the functionality that you offer? Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, kind of just like to address some of those like three challenges that the founders were looking at, um, you know, we answered kind of the first one, which is use BPF to provide baseline visibility across all of this different kinds of data that we just mentioned. Um, another important thing to know about our system is that it's built for Kubernetes. It's meant to run on the Kubernetes cluster and collect and embed Kubernetes metadata into everything that it does. Mm -hmm. So when you're reasoning about your system, you're reasoning in terms of pods and services and clusters. Um, you know, that is a really core part of the way it works. So the dimensions we said before that are very unique to, to Kubernetes environment. Right, right. Yeah. And um, I think one thing that's kind of exciting about Pixie is that it runs entirely, uh, all the data processing happens entirely on the customer cluster and the data is stored there, which we found people really, you know, resonate with for, you know, privacy concerns about that data because you collect this very deep observability information and it's so useful for troubleshooting systems, but we also keep it where it was collected so that, you know, there's not a concern about it being stored elsewhere. So uh, that provides those security privacy benefits, but it also provides uh, lots of performance benefits because it reduces the overhead of running our system. Um, and then the other thing with Pixie is that, uh, you know, it's built to be fully programmable. We have a Pythonic query language because we didn't want to reinvent the wheel there. And you can execute arbitrary queries using our API. So we've seen people use Slack bots with custom queries that you know, can alert them if, if something's up. So I think that those are kind of like three things that address it, but at a high level, what I would say is Pixie, you, you deploy it to your Kubernetes cluster and a few commands. It automatically provides you with UIs that show you the state of your cluster and ability to drill down into particular nodes and pods and see kind of a conglomeration of uh, application information like full body requests or request statistics, but also some of the, you know, resource utilization stuff we've been mentioning and merging those two data types together in one place. Nice. You also uh, have all sorts of machine learning capabilities to help uh, reduce the noise and uh, do some effective clustering, now. Yeah, we do. And this is something that is pretty exciting. And I think that, you know, for a long time, a lot of people have been thinking about, uh, you know, applying ML to observability and, I think that our philosophy for that is uh, rather than replace the human in the loop and try to like use AI to solve the whole problem for them, what we really want to do is rapidly speed up their iteration and like make the human in the loop a lot faster than before. And um, one of the ways that we do that today is by using machine learning to cluster different types of requests and traffic together. So users can look at clusters and see their behavior and I actually used that feature the other day myself when troubleshooting a, a production a production thing where uh, if you looked at the overall request statistics, it looked fine. But then when you dug into a particular cluster, you could quickly see that there was a problem there. So that's something that we're really excited about. I think the the ability to segment also, you know, you have a, a one endpoint, but then you need to segment according to different flows and different uh, tags or something like that. And only then do you discover that this is the, the problematic one. The ability to do this sort of segmentation is uh, something very powerful. 
Yeah, I mean, even something like a URL parameter can be yeah. a difficult thing for, for a lot of tools where you want to just bucket based on a wildcard, but um, you know, today that can be a surprising challenge. So that we felt that that was a clear win to apply ML to. Yeah, sounds good. We, I see also we have another question from the audience. Uh, so the question is, is it possible to know what's being transferred through HTTPS and encrypted communications? Yeah, so um, I think if you're saying like, is it possible to use eBPF to know that? Uh, definitely. I think that, um, you know, as for, as for, PC, I think that that, you know, is something that, uh, you know, we, we currently kind of treat HTTP traffic as HTTP traffic, but, um, you know, if, if that was something of interest to people, then that could be something that we would look at more. Uh, I think it's, it's a, an important note in general about BPF because the fact that it's in the kernel level, it can actually access, uh, I don't know how Pixie addresses it, in general, the, the technology as a technology allows to, to, to access the code before the encryption or after the decryption uh, stages, right? Right, right. Yeah, and so even if it is encrypted traffic, you know, we have the ability to to read that. Yeah, makes sense. And um, um, so, and you said that you also uh, essentially allow for the querying and programmability. So uh, you have a sort of an, a, an API that the programmers can actually script the, the parts and uh, create sorts of automations on top of that, right? Yeah, I mean, we really wanted, you know, observability, you know, workflows that we had to be code that you commit to GitHub. You know, we wanted it to just be a normal part of the developer workflow like anything else rather than, you know, tribal knowledge and a few murders heads that come out whenever there's a production incident. And so it was really important to us that we had a really uh, flexible and fully featured query language to empower people to use this data in the ways that were more, most useful to them. So we provide a lot of functionality right out of the gate with pre-built scripts, but it was also important to us to support custom scripts that the users write. And so, um, you know, in the kind of spirit of having these scripts be more like code that developers write every day, we wanted to instead of making up a new programming language or something like that, we wanted to actually try to follow existing standard APIs. And so what we decided to do was, first of all, um, you know, our query language follows Python syntax. So you can use it in editor with Python styling and just, you know, it looks just like Python. Um, and for the querying and manipulation of data, we were, always really big fans of the pandas project and for people who aren't familiar with it it's probably the best tool for the best open source tool for you know like manipulating data sets for analysis and all of the things that it does were the same types of things that we needed to do with pixie so we said okay well let's you know rather than reinvent the wheel let's just follow what they do and follow their api and yeah. you know we've heard from our users that they really like that, especially if they're already, you know, users of that project, because it just reduces the barrier to entry and they can just write code like any other code. Uh, cool. That sounds like a much, much easier start. So um, uh, for, for now, essentially, now that you're part of CNCF, do you have any plans? Obviously, Kubernetes is a very central goal that you have in your, in your instrumentation. Is there any other additional uh, integration that you expect to have within the CNCF ecosystem, maybe in general in the cloud native uh, sphere that uh, 
you look you're looking into as part of joining the CNCF? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, there's a lot of really amazing projects in the CNCF, and um, by joining it, it you know, we feel it gives us an opportunity to collaborate with those projects even more than you know, even more than before. And I think that when you are, uh, you know, when you're a startup, integrations with other tools are important, but uh, when you're an open source project, it's critical because open source projects need to work with other open source projects and play nicely together because that's just a really important part of the ecosystem. So um, we're really excited to expand our open telemetry integration capabilities and you know also build integrations with tools like Prometheus. So um, yeah, we're really excited to do more of that. And the fact that Kubernetes is a CNCF project uh, made it a really clear place for us to try to end up as well. Nice. So, uh, and, and by the way, I assume uh, the choice of CNCF was a, was a natural for you, given that you're looking into the Kubernetes ecosystem and that. So, uh... Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you look at the project there, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of clear synergy the two is a business term yeah. <laughs> what, we're doing, what they're doing. And so, yeah, we're really excited to be among, you know, those amazing projects. Well, why go uh, in, in, a, in a foundation path uh, to begin with? You can, you could open source without doing that. Just curious why, why you went down this path? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think that, um, you know, the community that it provides is obviously like, you know, a really big part and, we also see it as a commitment to our audience and our users to say that, you know, we're going to remain open source. We're going to be Apache 2.0 and, you know, we're going to stay that way because we're a CNCF project and that's our commitment to, you know, maintaining, you know, those standards going forward as a project. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's something that goes well, especially in light of uh, some other open sources today that are governed by uh, vendors and then suddenly, things shift and licenses are being uh, changed. And uh, this is something that uh, raises concern amongst uh, the community members. So uh, seeing this sort of commitment, I think it goes very well. So uh, I, at least on my end, I think it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a good move to, uh, to show the, the goal that you're, you're taking here. Um, so uh, if, you, uh, if you're looking at what's lying ahead beyond now being part of New Relic and uh, joining the CNCF and open sourcing uh, Pixie. What's uh, what's uh, up uh, in the roadmap for you guys? Yeah, so um, you know we have a, a roadmap page on our docs, so you know we can we can send that out or put that in the in the thing. But um, to kind of summarize, I think that you know we want to expand in a few ways on what we've been doing. We want to support more environments. Um, you know, today there are certain environments that we we don't support uh, yet, like Docker for desktop and things like that. So we want to expand the environments that we support is one thing. We want to expand the type of data collect we collect. Like while Pixie collects a really rich set of observability data, um, you know, with eBPF, you're really just scratching the surface because of the you know huge capabilities that it has. So we want to collect even more types of data. Um, and so like something like log data, for example, is something that we'll be looking at in the future. Um, we want to expand the ML capabilities that we have. I mean, I alluded to certain things like, uh, clustering based on, you know, different types of requests, but mm -hmm. we think that, you know, we're just in the very early days of, you know, 
those kinds of assistive AI UX experiences. And so we want to really expand that. Um, and we want to also improve the Kubernetes support that we have and make even more resource types available to query and look at their history of, you know, the events that took place involving those resources in Pixie. So I think that's another one that we want to do. Nice. Um, uh, by the way, for the, for our uh, listeners and our uh, audience on the live stream, if you have any more questions as we're uh, drawing near to the uh, end of the conversation, do feel free to uh, type them in now and try to squeeze them in. I have uh, maybe one uh, question more on the personal note of your, your experience. So uh, you've been through this amazing journey from uh, being a founding engineer in a, in a startup all the way through to an acquisition and then yet again uh, get, joining a, open sourcing the project then joining a foundation all of these are, are major things i'm not sure that many engineers undergo all of these in one in one uh, row but so how do you summarize this uh, this journey your personal journey and maybe some useful tips that you can share with us uh, about to, about to experience some of these yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think that it's been a crazy year for us. We launched the product, we got acquired by New Relic, we open sourced the project in its entirety, and then we, uh, you know, were accepted into CNCF. And I think that each one of those times is a different phase of what you're doing. And so, you know, every every single new phase, it feels like a reinvention and the needs of our open source users versus the needs of our users when we were, you know, a, a paid product uh, in the past, like, you know, those are, those are very different. And so what I would say, like, my best advice is just like, to, you know, embrace the new challenges that you see with each phase. And, uh, you know, try to really like, listen to people in the community and like, what are they doing? What are they trying to do? I think it's easy to get a little lost in the weeds of like the specific project you're working on, but it's really important to like always see the big picture and see how the work you're doing can be extended to address some of those problems. I guess that's a little bit generic, but uh, <laughs> trying to be as general as possible. No, no, it's fair enough. I think uh, also from, uh, from uh, experience, for example, now I'm, I'm part of the uh, open search, uh, new, uh, new open source. And I think some of the things that you see you know, organizations that are not accustomed to or, or are coming new to the uh, to the open source realm is some cultural changes also in terms of the engineering works and the, the, the product road mapping. Suddenly you need to have everything exposed. Mm -hmm. You can't have any back channels uh, closing in, although it may be very efficient in the short term. But then again, you need to loop in the community. You need to do it in collaboration with the community. And you, get, you need to get consensus about things. You need to have very clear visibility into what's uh, coming ahead. Uh, is that something that you've experienced? Yeah, for sure. It's a huge mindset shift because, you know, on one hand, there may be a tendency when you go open source to be afraid to like open everything up. Like, you know, if I made a dumb commit at some point, like that's all public, right? Yeah. You know, and so, uh, you know, it can be a little scary to open up, not just the history of what you've done and what you're doing, but also roadmaps for the future, because sometimes the roadmaps can change. And so it can be scary to, you know, make all this information public because it opens you up to, you know, more people giving their opinion about whether or not it's correct. But I think that, you know, even though that can create some challenges, what you gain in return is trust from the people that you're serving with the project. 
And so even if they don't agree with every decision, they know that you're going to be open with them about what you're doing and why the whole way. And I think that it's one of those, you know, multi-round games, if you know what I mean, where, you know, in the beginning it can be a little scary, but what you get in the long run by being open um, is definitely worth it. I can't agree more. Um, I'm really sorry that we're uh, out of time because I could uh, ask you many more questions uh, about that and others. But uh, I want to thank you very much, Natalie, for joining us. And thank you for sharing all this information. Uh, fascinating topic. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And with that, let's uh, move on to uh, the breaking news section of our uh, uh, podcast. The episode, uh, each episode, uh, I'm trying to get some interesting uh, bits or uh, publications or uh, updates that I would like to share. Uh, the first one that I'd like to share that's actually uh, directly relevant to uh, uh, the podcast, the, the, epi the, sorry, the topic today uh, is a, a blog post by uh, the Netflix uh, engineering team. Let me uh, share that for the ones that are on, uh, on the YouTube. Um, just a second. Get that one. Here we go. So what you can see here, uh, that's a blog post uh, uh, on how Netflix used the eBPF flow uh, logs at scale for network insights. Uh, it's actually quite uh, quite fascinating to see. Uh, they talk about uh, using eBPF trace points to capture TCP flows at near real time. In terms of performance, we talked about uh, performance uh, on, on a conversation with Natalie. Uh, they, uh, Netflix specifically talked about less than 1% of CPU and memory uh, on an instance, uh, highly performant. So uh, I think it's a, it's a fascinating uh, case study. And obviously, at Netflix scale, it's something that is... Uh, Something that definitely uh, we can learn from. It's not a, it's not a hack or a, or a POC by by any means. So uh, it's a, an interesting post that uh, that I've encountered uh, that I wanted to share. Another one that's uh, relevant to that is about uh, I mentioned that instrumenting uh, microservices with Istio uh, for distributed tracing. Uh, so again, highly recommended. That's uh, relevant to uh, what we talked about before. Um, uh, just to understand what it takes, assuming Istio is the most popular, uh, uh, currently the most popular uh, service mesh out there. So probably uh, quite relevant for people who are looking to see how to start with that. It's a very thorough uh, blog post. And one of the things that I liked about it is that it covers sort of two uh, um, uh, two ways, let's, uh, let's put it, of uh, instrumenting. One, first of all, two languages, one example with Go and another example with uh, Java. And also in terms of uh, the approach. So uh, one uses uh, the open tracing APIs to propagate the trace data, and another one by manually forwarding HTTP headers to propagate trace data. So you get uh, quite a, a varied example with uh, code snippets and with examples that you can uh, follow uh, to see how to do that. So uh, another something that I thought uh, uh, might be useful. Another thing uh, that is relevant to last uh, last month's episode, I uh, hosted here Kyle uh, from uh, AWS to discuss OpenSearch, uh, just uh, as it was about to uh, uh, release the release candidate. So uh, shortly after the episode, the release candidate indeed uh, came out. Uh, and you can read about that um, uh, on, on a blog post from the community on the community side. Uh, so, uh, really exciting, and actually, uh, uh, in the coming month, in July, the GA is expected to come out as well. Again, uh, 
yet to be seen. It's an open source, as you know, and the pre-GA, but uh, that's at least the, the current plan. Uh, so you can get all the information about that uh, on this blog post. And uh, congrats to OpenSearch and look forward to the uh, GA finally after this uh, interesting journey that uh, it has gone through. Uh, let me see what else uh, we have here. Uh, something else that's interesting that I saw uh, is a survey just from yesterday, in fact. Um, let me share that. Um, it's a survey by the CNCF together with, uh, uh, with the FinOps. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, so uh, the title should be already intriguing. Kubernetes, a black hole uh, of unpredictable spend, according to a new report. So uh, <laughs> I had to read this article after this. So uh, CNCF, together with the FinOps Foundation, as I said, uh, did uh, quite an, uh, a survey. They had, uh, although only 195 respondents, but they say it was uh, uh, clear, interesting, clear signals. I think that the most important thing uh, that I saw is uh, first, that the vast majority of respondents either do not monitor Kubernetes spending at all, which is 24%, or they rely on monthly estimates, 44%, which was quite, quite astonishing because people actually don't know how much it costs them to operate. Um, and amongst those who, uh, who did monitor, it was interesting to see that less than 25% of those who surveyed said that they could actually predict how much they'd spend on Kubernetes uh, to within 5% uh, of actual cost. Uh, and it climbed to 60% uh, when they were asked if they uh, could predict within 10% so of real cost. So uh, it shows that uh, you know uh, there are lots of uh, operational challenges with uh, Kubernetes that uh, we got to, to talk in, in previous episodes. But the, the financial, the FinOps side of things is also something we don't talk enough about. But Still, people need to, uh, I guess, the, we as a community and the industry need to, uh, I guess, mature up a bit more also about the way that we are able to measure uh, and, uh, and understand the, the cost aspects of, uh, um, of, of, of managing and, and running Kubernetes. Uh, let me see. Uh, maybe we have time for one uh, last, uh, last uh, bit. So this one is... Uh, uh, something that was published in the, uh, the new stack uh, and also regarding tracing uh, titled why logs aren't enough to debug your, uh, to debug your microservices by uh, Michael Haberman. By the way, we had the, I had the pleasure of hosting uh, Michael here at the uh, podcast uh, talking about uh, tracing and about using it in pre-production scenarios. So you're more than welcome to check out this uh, uh, episode in the Open Observability Talks. Uh, for more information by uh, Michael Haberman. But this specific one I found very, very uh, extensive and interesting to show that at least in, in modern environments, in microservices ecosystem and so on, you uh, can't rely only on logs and the, the, the value of traces becomes not a nice to have, but actual must have for many of the flows that you, uh, that you encounter. So uh, really uh, recommend uh, this post as well. I'll, I'll post the link also uh, as part of the uh, episode. So I think that's as much as I can uh, uh, spend on the uh, breaking news part for this episode. Uh, we'll keep some for uh, next time. Uh, but definitely, I would like to uh, thank again uh, Natalie uh, for joining me for a, a fascinating episode. And I'd like to thank you for uh, joining and listening on this episode. I, I hope you found it uh, useful. Uh, you can find, as I said, all the episodes on your favorite podcast apps. Uh, it's also available on YouTube. And um, 
You can uh, have a look at the uh, website, openobservability.io. By the, by the way, uh, um, we revamped, uh, we had a facelift for the website, so it's uh, much more uh, intuitive now. So check it out, openobservability.io. If you have any uh, topics that you would like to submit, we have a CFP open there on the website. Just submit your uh, topic. We'd be more than happy to have more uh, members of the community uh, taking part of this. So. Uh, uh, go ahead, and uh, uh, you can also find everything uh, around uh, around it with uh, uh, the uh, Twitter at OpenObserve, or you can reach out to me at Horowitz. Uh, we'd be more than happy to get feedback on the uh, summary of the one year of the episode, ideas for the, uh, the, the sorry the podcast, ideas for the next season, uh, and anything else. Just uh, uh, let us know. You have all the information here. I'm Dutan Horvitz, and thank you very much for listening, and see you next month on the next episode. Thank you.